Now, before I start the lecture, I need to make a correction. Uh, last week, I did share with you that the two textbooks that we'll be using for this study is a manual of church, a church member's manual by William Crawl, uh, that was 1847. These are reprinted, readily available now. Uh, again, 1847. And then this one, which was by Jeter and uh, was done, uh, a accumulation of articles that he published in a uh, magazine, but then they were put into a book form in 1875 called Baptist Principles Reset. I introduced you to both of these books, but I made the mistake of saying that William Crowell was involved in the uh, organization and publication of our Baptist hymnal that we use here. But that was, uh, that was uh, an error. I had that in the wrong place in my notes. Uh, it was not Kroll, but Jeter, who was uh, involved in the compilation of our uh, Baptist Confession of Faith. So I just want to make that little bit of correction there to, to my uh, uh, statement from last week. Now, again, somewhat preliminary. I said last week that last week's lecture was not an introduction to our subject. It was really an introduction to the course. Uh, I, I shared with you what materials I'm using primarily. These are, of course, not exclusively. There's a lot of other things that I draw from, but these are the two principal sources. We talked about that. We talked about somewhat of the biography of these two men, Jeter and Kroll. We entertained their biographies. <clears throat> All of that was in Lecture 1, and that was really not about the subject matter. That was about the course. Now today, we will hopefully at least get into uh, beginning to look at the actual subject matter. But before, again, uh, before I get to the actual doctrines, and all of this background material is so important. It's so important that you understand the context uh, of things. Uh, before we get into the actual doctrines, this particular book that I introduce you to, Baptist Principles Reset, started out, as I said originally, it was a series of articles by Jeremiah Jeter in uh, 1875. But then the book was republished. Uh, it was republished, this edition was new and enlarged in Richmond, Virginia, 1902. Now, in what they did in the enlargement was they added articles from uh, other men. Originally, it was only Dr. Jeter's articles that were in this book. And uh, when the republication took place, they added to that, and there's a whole series of articles by several different men, uh, and those deal with Baptist principles in a general way, maybe the subject of Baptist principles or the principles themselves. There are various articles that were written that are in the back of this book. They, that, is the, that is what's new and enlarged about it. Well, I wanted to start today because of the title and topic of one of those articles. And it is the article in chapter 9, if you ever purchased the book. Uh, it's chapter 9, and it's an article done by James 
Brighton Gamble. So I want to give you a word of his bio on him. There's only one article. Uh, I think there's only one article in here uh, by this gentleman. And as with Jeter himself, you can see he's quite a stern-looking fellow. And uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, just in by way of a brief bio of him, he was born in Anderson, South Carolina. Luke should shout on that. Amen. Born in Anderson, South Carolina. That's where Luke was born. I think, was he born? Is that where he was born? I think I was there, but I hardly remember it. <laughs> August 21st, 1841. I was born in Anderson, South Carolina. Luke was born in Anderson, South Carolina. And so this is a fine, fine man here. He came from a family, uh, uh, of a family religious, uh, as well as patriotic. Uh, he was a scout in the war between the states, the war of late unpleasantness. Uh, he was a scout for Robert E. Lee. He fought at Gettysburg. But then here tops off the amazement and wonderfulness of this fine fellow. During the war, at one o'clock in the morning, on January the 18th, 1864, he married a girl from Virginia. Born in South Carolina, married a girl from Virginia, great theologian. <laughs> January 18th, 1864, right in the war, one o'clock in the morning, he married his wonderful wife. He, uh, moved on. I won't, I have his bio printed here. You're welcome to peruse it or look it up for yourself. He went on to become president of Mercer after the war. He was president of Mercer, which is a name dear to the hearts of real Baptists. He was the president of Mercer for three years. He was later on the faculty of Southwestern Seminary. He was president of the Southern Baptist Convention for four terms. So this is a man of some renown and station. And uh, I just wanted you to have just that brief overview of his uh, of his uh, life, this person who's sharing his teaching with us here today. The title that grabbed me is the title of his uh, lecture. Obligations of Baptists to teach their principles. We are living in a generation of amalgamation. Nobody wants anything to be distinct. We want to blur the lines right across the board. Religion, whatever, politics, sociology, you name it. Everything today, we want amalgamation. We want everything to melt together. We don't want anything to stand out as being distinct. Uh, the only thing, as someone recently, not a believer, said to me recently, the only thing that is in vogue right now is that nothing 
is in vogue. <laughs> now, of course, we can tear that apart uh, from logic and philosophically and every other way. But it is the reality of the, of the world that we're living in. There is, there is this desire to blend everything. Well, as Baptists, we simply can't do that. We simply can't do it. Our convictions will not allow it. And it isn't because we're Baptists. Rather, we are Baptists because we hold certain distinctions and we cannot turn them loose by conscience. So this title is very bold in itself by today's standards. By the way, this, uh, this lecture was delivered in February of 1900. So that was 123 years ago. And it was obviously needed or he would not have been delivering it. But what he delivered was this, this title, Obligations of Baptists to Teach Their Principles. Now we're living in a day that most Baptists would disagree with that. Professing Baptists, those who claim to be Baptists. They would tell you, you don't, you shouldn't be don't get hung up on these things and, you know, create walls and, and cause divisions. You need to let those things go. <clears throat> well, Gambrel said otherwise. And here's what he said in defense of this, this principle. Speaking of a Christian, an able writer once said, and he didn't say who the able writer was, but he said, He's quoting someone else. It is by the truths of the divine word that he is to expand and strengthen his intellect. It is these, that is these doctrines, the truths of the divine word, these which he is to convert into principles that are to form the stratum and the basis of his character. That are to purify his heart and regulate his conduct. So he's making the point, this gentleman that Gamble is quoting, is making the point that we as Christians, our whole responsibility is to find in the word of God truth and develop from that principle and then those principles will, will lay the platform for our conduct. How we live will be built on our principles. Our principles are built on the Word of God. There it is. There it is. There's the whole thing. That's the whole point. He goes on later and he says, character, and there's a word that's almost lost out of our modern vocabulary, isn't it? I mean, nobody talks about character anymore. Character is the end of the process. It is the ripe fruit of all teaching and all grace. By the way, I'm on page 243 of this book. If you just want to make a note, if you ever intend to get the book, I'm reading from page 243, a lecture by Gamble. Character is the design end of this process. The ripe Fruit of all teaching and all grace. Character. 
It is a powerful proof of the divinity of the Bible that amid the conflicts of the ages, even with all the indifferent handling by priests and partisans, it has steadily advanced every people who have given it a place to elevate and guide them. The study of the scriptures, the doctrines it contains, and especially those which seem to be uniquely among us as Baptists, these things, he says, have steadily advanced every people. I thought of the lecture, Brother John, that you're going to bring. I've asked Brother John to prepare down the road to bring us a couple of lectures on how Baptists have affected liberty, the, the presence of liberty in governments, Baptist influence on liberty. I thought of that when I read this. These doctrines have steadily advanced every people, every people that have given them the opportunity to guide and elevate them. The Bible is today, now this was uh, 1900, all right? The Bible is today the very core of the highest civilization the world knows. Now that's a huge statement. That's a huge statement. It is the fountainhead of all that is best in literature, in art, in song, in law, in sociology, in human life, whether in the palace or in the cottage, this Bible is the fountainhead of all that is good. <laughs> no wonder they wanted it out of the public schools. <laughs> no wonder they wanted it out of every. They want it out of the courts. They want it out of our laws. They want it out of everything. But it is the fountainhead of all that is good. Then he said it holds the same place given to it by Burns in that noblest of all the poems in the English term, language. Now, when I read that, I thought, my goodness. Now, here, here's, here is this man. I gave you his credentials. You see his education, his experience. Faculty of Southwestern Seminary, President of SBC, President of Mercer. Here's a man of scholarship. This man of scholarship says that this Bible holds the place in civilization that was given to it by Burns, and then he calls that by Burns the noblest poem in the English language. My goodness, I thought, uh-oh, i got to find this. It's called The Cotter's Saturday Night. So I looked it up. It's quite a long poem, and I certainly don't intend to read it to you, but you would enjoy very much reading it. The Cotter's Saturday Night. Just a poor working class man comes home on Saturday night and uh, the scene, that's the scene of the poem, he, it tells what he does. And in verse 14 and 15 of that 
what uh, what uh, Gamble calls the greatest poem in the English language by Burns. Here's what verse 14 and 15 says. He's sitting around now the fire. The cotter is sitting around the fire, his hearth at his own home. And uh, Burns is writing about it. He says, the priest-like father reads the sacred page. How Abram was the friend of God on high. Or Moses bade eternal warfare rage with Amalek's ungracious prodigy. Or how the royal bard did groaning lie beneath the stroke of heaven's avenging iron. Or Job's pathetic plaint and wailing cry. Or rat Isaiah's wild seraphic fire. Or other holy seers that tune the sacred lyre. Perhaps the Christian volume is the theme how guiltless blood for guilty man was shed. How he who bore in heaven the sacred name had not on earth whereon to lay his head. How his first followers and servants sped the precepts sage they wrote to many a land. How he who lone in Patmos banished saw in the sun a mighty angel stand and heard great Balaam's doom pronounced by heaven's command. So Burns in this poem is recounting how that the cotter sitting at home around his hearth with his children and his family, extended family, he's sitting around the hearth and what is he doing? He's reading them the Bible. And this is Gamble's point. This is Gamble's point. This Bible. The importance of the Bible. He says a proper study of this divine method of delivering the race from slavery of error into real liberty must deeply impress us with the necessity of spiritual preaching as well as the transcendent importance of doctrinal preaching. In some course, uh, quarters, there has grown up a strong and hindering prejudice against the preaching of what they call dry doctrine. <laughs> This was 1900. I'm not reading you from a current journal. I'm reading from 1900. Okay? He says there has grown up this problem that there is a strong and hindering prejudice against preaching dry doctrine. And then he says this. The trouble does not lie in the doctrine, but in the dry preaching of it. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Not the doctrine that's the problem. It's the preaching that's the problem. Dry preachers have turned the very bread of heaven into stones. And not a few have found no better use for the stones after they've made them than to cast them at their theological adversaries. Wow. 
Much of the doctrinal preaching is not only distastefully dry. We have a joke among us, do we not? About the ice pick to the hand. <laughs> you hear some men preach and you just need an ice pick, stab yourself in the hand see if you're still alive. Much of the doctrinal preaching is not only distastefully dry, but distressingly gritty. We can scarcely wonder that hungry souls turn away from a ministry which preaches predestination without pathos, election without grace, baptism without its sublime spiritual meaning, communion without sensibility, and all duty without beauty. No wonder nobody wants to follow that kind of ministry. Why would you want to be subject to a ministry like that? Predestination without pathos. Election without grace. Baptism without its sublime meaning. Communion without sensibility. And duty without beauty. That's profound. Amen. I say amen. But then there is a deplorable reaction to this dry preaching that has come about. <clears throat> and I'll give you that. We'll not be able to anywhere near finish this lecture today, but <clears throat> let me just go ahead and give you this. There is what Gambrel called a deplorable reaction to this dry doctrinal preaching. He said the reaction from what has just been described, the reaction is no better possibly some degrees worse than the problem. There be many who discredit doctrine entirely. <laughs> One of the first phrases I learned when I came to the knowledge of the doctrine of grace and truth, uh, somebody said, so I guess you're going to be one of those frozen chosen. <laughs> frozen chosen. Okay. Uh that's some of those who discredit doctrine entirely. They have gone away into the mists, mists of mere sensationalism. Feeling is everything. Teaching is nothing. This notion is at the bottom of modern revivalism and the sensual order. Now this was 1900. And he's already talking about revivalism. Not revival. That's a biblical doctrine. Revivalism is a system of practice that has grown out of sensationalism. They have gone away into the midst of mere sensationalism. Feeling is everything. Teaching is nothing. This notion is at the bottom of modern revivalism and sensational order. It abounds in claptrap and after a community has been swept by, by and by, when the revivalist is gone, nothing substantial remains. I had a pastor recently, church close to him, told me they had a revival. And there were eight people saved in one service. 
I said, well, hallelujah. How are they doing? Well, I don't know. We haven't seen them since. <laughs> My goodness. There is no stratum, uh, substratum, there is no substratum of truth upon which the converts can stand. In other words, they didn't build anything. They didn't build anything. And this, that is doctrinal preaching, later on, he says this doctrinal preaching behooves Baptists to do even more than other people. For Baptists are nothing without the Bible and will go to nothing if not the unify if not if they have not the unifying and guiding power of the Spirit among them. They are committed unreservedly to the voluntary principle in religion. They have no human authority over them. Their only hope of unity is in the spirit and truth. There is in not a few churches a truce with their surroundings. Now, brother, if this was true in 1900, where in the world are we now? There is, he says, in some places, some kind of a truce with our surroundings. Alliances with peoples of defective and alien doctrinal views have become a real hindrance to the honest, thoroughgoing New Testament teaching on doctrines about which there are differences of opinion. It has come to pass that some preachers are following public opinion hmm, rather than teaching and leading it. There is scarcely a sorrier spectacle in the world than a man with a commission from the eternal king to herald his everlasting truth taking secret counsel with Mrs. Grundy as to what he shall say. Now that phrase struck me because I'm not historically, I'm not in 1900. So he uses this phrase as if everybody knew it, which they did then, taking counsel from Mrs. Grundy. So I looked that up. That phrase originated as an unseen character in Thomas Morton's five-act comedy play in 1798. There was this character in a play in 1798 called Mrs. Grundy. And it, because of her use in that play, that expression, asking Mrs. Grundy, became a figurative name for the fear of public opinion. And he says there's nothing more sorry and despicable than for a man who has a commission from the eternal king to be the sort of fellow that asks Mrs. Grundy <laughs> about what he's preaching. In other words, he's we say he's playing to the gallery. Playing to the gallery. He's searching his finger to the wind to see what popular opinion is. I would venture to say 98% of the churches in Coweta County today 
would never come to the pulpit and preach the truth. Scared to death. Wouldn't dare. Their search for popular opinion. Whatever that is, they go the way of the crowd. He said it is preeminently, and I love this. we have to get to a close here pretty quick. It is preeminently the function of the pulpit to mold and lead thought so that the thoughts of the people shall be God's thoughts. Until people think right, they will not act right. Simple, right? Nothing profound there. Nothing profound, but something very strong. People will not act right until they think right, and they are not thinking right until they think God's thoughts. And how are they going to know them? How are they going to know them? The scriptures. The word of God. As Baptist principles are are peculiar to Baptists, every Baptist church, with all its appointments, from the preacher to the teacher, ought to stand in the community where it holds forth the word for something different from any other congregation. When a Baptist church thinks of itself as just one of the churches in a community with no mission above others, it has become a very weak affair indeed. May the Lord help us. May the Lord help us. That we would not think no would would think no more of our mission and our message than that we are just one among you. Close with these statements. Great revivals have accompanied the heroic preaching of the doctrines of grace. Great revivals. And John would be more capable. Brother Gormley and my wife as historians would be able to more eloquently than myself give you specifics on that. Great revivals have accompanied the heroic preaching of the doctrines of grace. Predestination. Election. And that whole lofty mountain range of doctrines upon which Jehovah sits enthroned, sovereign in grace as in all other things else. God honors the preaching that honors Him. There is entirely too much milksop preaching nowadays trying to cajole sinners to enter upon a truce with their maker, quit sinning, and join the church. (laughs) The situation does not call for a truce, but for a surrender. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. Brethren, when we present the gospel to the sinner, we're not asking them to to sign a truce with God. God isn't inviting them to sign a truce. They are commanded to a full-fledged surrender. Jesus is not put out. He's not running for an office and He's not looking for your vote. 
The Father hath already made him both Lord and Christ. You had nothing to do with it. Let us bring out the heavy artillery of heaven and thunder away at this stuck-up age as Whitfield, Edward Spurgeon, and Paul did, and there will be many slain, slain of the Lord, raised up to walk in newness of life. Amen. Amen. Preach the truth. Great revivals have come out of that kind of preaching. I was thinking as I read those words, I was thinking back over my 50 plus years of preaching in jail. And listening to other men preach in jail. Two sermons. Out of the hundreds that I've heard. Two sermons. I hope God giving me the grace to keep my mind till I perish. Two sermons to my dying day will stand out in my mind. One was brought. Dear brother. R.L. Brazel visited here. He said, you are living in a reprobate generation and there is nothing you can do about it. Ooh, that's hard. That's hard preaching. Preaching to sinners now. And then brother Charles Dahl called a message years ago Took the text, no man can come to me. No man can come to me. No man can come to me. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. And he preached a message entitled, Come if you can. Not if you will. He kept saying, I'm not talking about if you will. I'm talking about if you can. Come if you can. What are you saying? Strong preaching. Preaching the truth. It'll leave its mark. It'll leave its mark. Well, Gambrel has much more to say, but I can't go there today. We'll finish the lecture, God willing, on next week.